Welcome back to Bible Time. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 still. I'm glad to be there. This is a very, very important lesson to learn from the Word of God today. Um, I I really feel like the my pastor saying just, this is the most important lesson maybe that I've ever preached. And he says it pretty often, and that happens when you study the Bible, because the Bible is, every verse is so important. Um, but in any case, this is really one of the most important lessons dealing with evangelism, dealing with salvation, dealing with how to discern um, true and false religion that we could possibly um, study right here. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. We're going to be looking at lies, lust, and leverage in the gospel. We're going to be looking at lies, lust, and leverage in evangelism. We're looking today at the sensual gospel. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, please help us, warn us, teach us, reprove us, rebuke us, exhort us from your word, Father. Change us into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to be found, Lord, just like he was, a servant-hearted, humble, and so loving and tender, Father, that they would say of us, though we do not partake of sin, that we're the friends of sinners, Father, because of our desire to see them saved. We pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to stay unspotted from the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in 1 Thessalonians 2, he lists three things here, deceit, uncleanness, and guile, that his exhortation could have come in. He says, our, our exhortation came not in deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Their exhortation was the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said that the... Um, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. So the Apostle Paul came to the church at Corinth um, with the desire to teach them nothing save Christ and him crucified. He did not have a denominational axe to grind. He did not have a set of systematic theology from some um, school somewhere that he wanted to teach them and to make sure that they had down. He didn't want to catechize them and and in a way to, to where they could... Um, just repeat back to him verbatim um, his meticulous theological statements um, without any thought or understanding of what they actually meant, which is a lot of modern evangelism, a lot of modern effort goes into those kinds of things. What Paul wanted was for the Corinthian church to know Christ. Now, the Corinthian church was a wealthy church, and their contrast with the Thessalonican church is very deep. The Corinthian church did not have persecution. Instead, they had wealth. The Thessalonican church had persecution, and with persecution, a lot of times comes poverty. Now, he doesn't mention their poverty um, very much, but he does mention their persecution and the trouble that they went through. So the Corinthian church had a lot of things that went really well for them, and they also had Paul the Apostle present uh, for many years. Paul, Paul based much of his work in the entire region out of Corinth because God gave Paul a space where he could work without being persecuted, and a lot of times you've got to take what you get. 
um, they say beggars can't be choosers, and gospel preachers are nothing but um, beggars, not beggars for money, not beggars for filthy lucre. Paul worked with his own hands, but they're beggars of God's righteousness. They're beggars of God's power. They're seeking God's power and God's um, God's provision of the gospel to carry the gospel to these other people. And so beggars just end up with what God gives them, people who are in the ministry and serving God with all their heart are very often without extra, without a bunch of means. They usually just have to take what's given them and they get and they get what they get and they got to do with whatever they can with what they get. Paul said, I know both how to be a, to abound and how to be abased. So while Paul would have loved to spend more time at the church at Thessalonica, he couldn't. He got kicked out. And whereas he loved the church at Corinth, and yes, he did want to spend time there, perhaps he would have spent more time in a more balanced manner between more places if he would have had the opportunity. But in God's divine plan, it wasn't going to work out for Paul to have a more balanced schedule. Instead, it would be shifted very heavily um, towards Corinth instead of Thessalonica. And yet Thessalonica was an example to all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, whereas Corinth had one of the letters of reprimand from Paul and some of the um, worst issues that had to be dealt with. The two churches that had the, the biggest rebukes from Paul were Galatia and Corinth. Thessalonica that had a little bit of time with Paul was taking off. And the reason for that is found in the power of the gospel, that not just the power of the gospel in a inert thing. We kind of think about the gospel and the power of the gospel like you would think of a car battery. And we think, well, the gospel has a certain latent amount, latent amount of power that it just has just because it's the gospel. And, then, and we get this idea that, let's say, the gospel is worth 75 joules of energy, and it's always going to be worth 75 joules of energy, and it's a very carnal way to think of it, but it's the way we think of it. And we think that if we can just get the gospel up on a billboard and people see the gospel, that they're going to get hit with that much energy of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And while the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel power is not a static um, unit of measurement. The power of the gospel in people's lives is directly affected by the, however, in God and his divine plan, when is it the power of the gospel is so hard to even comprehend or explain, but it, it is limited to what God chooses to limit it to. And I don't really know how to explain that. I'm not, I'm kind of at a loss for how to explain that. But the fact of the matter is that God does not visit every person with the same degree of power um, that he visits the Apostle Paul with on the road to Damascus. There, the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus, and the, a light shined ab about him above the brightness of the noonday sun. And he fell on the ground, and he said, Lord, who art thou? And he, of course, he heard the voice from heaven that said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And then he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord answered, Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And Paul, Paul, who was Saul, said, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? And he was converted. And not everyone gets that kind of power. Not everyone gets the, the power of God accompanying their, their 
call of God to salvation like the apostle Paul did. Some people just hear a preacher preach, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And they don't get a, a mighty experience like the apostle Paul did. So the power of God is not some kind of um, some kind of measurable unit of energy or something like that. It's not something that you can just bank on that if you tell somebody about Jesus that the power of God is going to be present. Do you remember about Jesus Christ himself that it said that when Jesus was preaching, the power of God was present for him to heal? Why would it say that? The power of God was present for him to heal. There were other times it wasn't. That's why. Now, I know you think that's heresy, but I can't help that. The, there were times that it wasn't. And the fact of the matter is that we cannot just take God's power for granted. And the power of the entrance of Paul and the evangelistic band to the church at Thessalonica was such that the church in three short weeks was transformed into a powerhouse church. By the way, power begets power. Christians often reflect the power of their conversion for most, if not the rest of their life. Christians who are converted in a time of great spiritual awakening, well, the power of God is being poured out upon earth from heaven, and men are under great conviction of sin. Those Christians often have a much more dynamic life of service to Christ than Christians who are born again in times of spiritual drought. So here, this Thessalonican church was born in trouble, but it was born in power. And by the way, this is not a coincidence because what happened right before the Thessalonican church got started? Paul and Silas singing in the, in the Philippian jail and the earthquake that came. By the way, that is an outpouring of power. When the Holy Spirit of God comes down so strong it shakes all the doors loose and all the shackles off, and the Holy Spirit of God comes into a place, and the Holy Spirit is a him, not an it. I was talking about the power of the Holy Spirit as an it. When he, the Holy Ghost, comes into a place and shakes the doors open off a jail and shakes all the shackles loose, that's some power. And they came out of the suffering at Philippi with such glory and power on them that when they got to Thessalonica, that came off on the people. Do you hear me today? And there was a revival power present that we call revival power today that Paul needed for the evangelization of the area that can only be gotten through suffering, by the way. There's a, there's a degree of power that only comes through suffering. Gather my people unto me, my people that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And Paul and Silas had sacrificed and they had responded in a godly manner to their suffering and the spirit of glory and of God rested upon them and the church at Thessalonica received the word as it was in truth as the word of God not as the word of man and after three short weeks they became a powerhouse and Paul is here contrasting what they got to these other three things deceit uncleanness and guile the power the gospel that was given their exhortation given in power and in truth is now contrasted to deceit uncleanness and guile. Now, how can the gospel be given in deceit and uncleanness and guile? Isn't the gospel the gospel? Didn't Paul say, if the gospel's preached, I will rejoice and hear and do rejoice, even though some preach the gospel to add to my bonds? 
Some people are not doing it in sincerity. They're doing it to add to my bonds. Yet, in any case, if the gospel's preached, I will rejoice. Yes, Paul said that. But did Paul say, so therefore, because the gospel being preached is something that I will rejoice and I'm going to train my preacher boys to go out and preach in contention to add to my bonds. Did Paul say that? No. So don't listen, don't go to extremes with this stuff. Balance it and rightly divide it. So just because Paul chose to rejoice that the gospel was going out, even though it was not going out in sincerity, doesn't mean the insincere gospel is useful. Do you hear me today? He was just rejoicing in the reality of the gospel. And we say, well, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So even whenever the, uh, a bunch of carnal, sensual Christians get up and have a rock and roll concert and tell people about Jesus, people can get saved because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, there is some truth in that. But the power of God that attends the power of God. The power of God that attends the gospel and that leads to effective conversions and a true, healthy, vibrant New Testament church is different from the gospel that's preached in insincerity. And we're going to look at some of those insincerity today, the sensual gospel. You say, why do we even need to look at this? Because it's out there. Because it's everywhere. And you need to know the difference. You need to know how to discern between the sensual gospel and the true gospel so that you don't get caught up in the sensual gospel because it will ruin your effectiveness for Christ. You need to not be involved in the sensual gospel. And you've got to know the Bible if you're going to stay out of that stuff. So first, let's look at what sensuality is. James chapter 3, quickly look at verse 15 this wisdom descendeth not from above but is earthly sensual devilish so right here that word sensual is part of a bologna sandwich one bun is earthly the other bun is devilish and the meaty juicy greasy cheeseburger in the middle is sensuality do you hear me today Earthly all by itself is pretty obvious, and it's something you're probably not too interested in. And half of a white bread bun of devilishness isn't really something that's going to attract a lot of people. But you stick that juicy, greasy burger of sensuality in the middle of that sandwich, and all of a sudden you've got people lining up for miles to try and get them one. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Now, we can look at the context. Uh, We may do that if we have time, but for now, we're just going to jump ahead to Jude, verse 9. Go to Jude, verse 9, and we'll see the only other mention of this word sensual in the Bible. And here in Jude 9, it says... um, I'm sorry, Jude 19, Jude verse 19, it says, These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. And Lord willing, we'll come back to those verses in just a little while. Sensuality is nothing more and nothing less than um, sense-based actions. Sense-based actions. Sense, your senses... Um, are part of your body. You have your taste, your touch, your smell, your sight, your hearing. Your senses are good things. Your body is made up of a mind, will, and emotions. So here's a picture I drew of a body and the five senses on the five points of the body. 
And then in the middle of the body, there's a circle with three parts, the mind, the will, and the emotions, and that makes up your soul. And in the middle of your soul, there's a little heart. The Bible talks about believing in your heart, the Lord Jesus. And a lot of people misapply that to the soul. And they think that if you believe in the soul, the Lord Jesus, that you will be saved when God actually and definitively means that you must believe in your spirit. Now, I've already lost a lot of you. Hang in there. Sensuality deals with the senses and works through the senses to produce the desired end of the salvation of the soul. When we talk about the sensual gospel, the sensual gospel works through the five senses to affect the soul to produce salvation. And we're going to show you today how that that wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Now he says, Our exhortation came not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. And their exhortation was the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is just as simple as this that Jesus Christ. God in the flesh died for our sins according to the scriptures was buried and rose again the third day and whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved that is the ultimate simplicity of the Bible you cannot add to that system of salvation at all but you can add understanding to that basic sketch and if that was all there was to the gospel then God would have given us those few sentences for the gospel and he would have foregone giving us the whole New Testament. The New Testament adds color and depth and life to the basic framework of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and rose again the third day, and whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. But that simplicity is given life and given vigor and given power through the depth of understanding given to us in the gospels and in the epistles and in the book of the Revelation. Without the depth of understanding given in the rest of the Gospels, you can err and you end up quickly with a sensual Gospel because you take that simplistic truth and without the depth of understanding that the rest of the New Testament gives, without the, the color that the rest of the New Testament gives, you begin to take those simple truths and try to rubber stamp them on people's foreheads. Ba-bomp. Just like that. And then you try it, and then you end up with all these rubber stamp Christians who have your simplistic gospel without color, without life. A black and white sketch of the gospel, and there's no lifeblood flowing through it, no power of God flowing through it, and they have no true conversion. But they've got the rubber stamp gospel on their forehead, and they're running around rubber stamping other people with the gospel. So let's look at these three words not of deceit. Not of, nor of uncleanness, nor of guile. So first of all, deceit. Go to um, the verse here. We have two, and let's look at verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. So this deceit 
the, the gospel coming with deceit is the gospel coming without the power of the Holy Ghost. This is a powerless going through the motions gospel and it is deceit. This is a nickels and noses gospel. An example would be, hey man, do you want to go to hell? No, I don't want to go to hell. Well, Jesus made a way. He died for us according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day, and whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Do you want to be saved? I want to be saved. Do you believe the gospel? I want to be, I believe the gospel. Pray this prayer, man. Um, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved, God. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved, God. Please have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. I confess my sins. I confess my sins. I repent. Whatever else you want to add in. And, and then they finish praying and you say, all right, brother, you're a new Christian. You're born again by the power of God. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You should go get baptized, join the church, and join the evangelistic team because you're in, man. You're in the inside. And don't you ever let anybody tell you anything different because you're saved and the Bible says that any man that comes to me, I shall in no wise cast out. And you start feeding them all these eternal security verses. What we've got there is the word of man instead of the word of God. Did you know that the Bible says you're a sinner? The Bible says you're lost. The Bible says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The Bible says the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to God. The Bible says, the Bible says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible says you're lost. Don't you dare let any man tell you you're saved anybody that will tell you you're saved is defying the word of god now you think i've gone off the deep end not at all the bible says that the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God and that God has shed forth his spirit in our hearts crying Abba Father and the Bible says that if you get saved that the Holy Spirit of God will bear witness in your spirit that you are a child of God and it is God's job to tell you that you're justified God in his word told you that you're lost and only God through his word and the witness of the Holy Spirit can tell you that you're saved and don't you dare let any man tell you that you're saved until you got it from God himself do you hear me today those people out there they can't see your spirit your daddy can't see your spirit your mommy can't see your spirit we can't I can't even see my own spirit how am I supposed to see your spirit I can't. It's a lie. It's a bunch of religious hooplas, all it is. The deceit of the gospel. Whenever you come with a sensual gospel of deceit, you come and tell people that they're saved whenever God hasn't. Now listen, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Here's the problem. Who gets to determine when that belief is saving faith and whether or not it is saving faith? How do you know if, you, if the belief is a real belief? Did you know that if you put your faith in what somebody says about God, instead of placing your faith in what God said about God, that your faith is not pleasing to God, that your faith is faith in man and not faith in God, because faith is trusting the veracity of the one speaking. You see, the Thessalonian church heard the gospel 
But when they heard the gospel, somewhere deep in their hearts, they knew that they were hearing the word of God. And they did not receive the gospel from Paul and Silas as the gospel from Paul and Silas. Do you hear me today? And this is the key to the whole thing. Something happened. The Holy Spirit of God moving deep in their hearts. They came to an understanding that God was speaking, not just Paul and Silas. And they dealt directly with God. And they turned directly to God. And they placed their faith in God and in God's word. And the difference is heaven or hell. A man that comes and trusts, um, let's, the, um, the other guy that preaches with us a lot um, does these tent meetings with us, so we do these together, Michael Kime. So Michael Kime gets up and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And let's say there's some old hobo sitting there that desperately wants to be saved, and he looks up at Michael Kime standing there and he says, that man seems like a good man. And I see that what that man is doing has worked for him and what I'm doing has not worked for me. And I want something that that man has and I hear what that man says. And I don't know deep down in my heart if there even is a God, but I know that that man has something that I want. And he turns and he says, all right, Mr. Man, I want what you have, Mr. Man. Tell me your words, Mr. Man, so I can believe what you say, Mr. Man. And that man, let's say Mr. Michael, goes and he shares the gospel with them. And the whole time he's speaking, that man is seeing Mr. Michael. And he's hearing Mr. Michael. And he's not listening to Almighty God. And he's not dealing with Almighty God. He's dealing on a sensual level with his own mind, with a man, and not with God. And he can do anything Mr. Michael asks him to do. If Mr. Michael asks him to do a backflip through a burning hoop and he accomplishes it, it won't make him any more saved than if he prays a sinner's prayer because Mr. Michael asked him to do it. Do you hear me today? This is life and death. This is the difference between spirit and letter is that those who come to God and truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are receiving the word, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And this is the difference. This is it, night and day. The powerless gospel, the gospel, the, th the go through the motions gospel, the come and um, jump through my hoops, say what I want you to say, do what I want you to do, wear what I want you to wear, do my little rubber stamp list, punch my checklist of things that prove to me that you are saved and then I will accept you as a saved person is not the power of God unto salvation. Do you hear me today? But when you take the gospel as it is the word of God in truth, not as the word of man, now you have the power of God unto salvation. The gospel as it is the word of man is powerless. It's just as powerless as Buddhism. It's just as powerless as Hinduism. When the gospel comes as the word of man, when the hearer sees the man, hears the man, thinks the man is the one telling him, and he's putting his faith and his trust in the man that says it, it will do no more good for him than if he was trusting in Buddha. Because his faith is not in God. They that come to God must believe that He, God, is. And that He, God, is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Do you hear me today? Boy, I feel like 
the devil hates this message. Lord, help us get through. Help us, Lord, to preach the truth. Help me not to err and cause anyone to stumble. Help me just to be right with this today. In Jesus' name, listen to me today. The devil is the father of lies. Our gospel came, he said, our exhortation came not in deceit. We didn't come with dead, powerless gospel and put you through a bunch of motions. We didn't get you to join the church. We didn't give you a checklist of things to change in your life so that we could prove to everybody around us how good our soul winning is and what kind of converts that we have. Do you hear me today? What they did was they came and they preached the gospel of Christ and the Thessalonican church received the gospel of Christ as it was in truth, as the word of God and not of man. And that's the key. That is the key. Without that, you have no salvation. If you come, you can preach Jesus Christ all day long. And unless God convicts the hearts of the hearers and they deal with God Almighty, they will not be saved. They can go through whatever motions you want to put on them. And by the way, a lot of sinners will. You can tell them to get baptized. You can tell them to run around and speak in tongues. You can tell them to do backflips. And if they're physically capable, many of them will do it. You can tell them to give to the church, give tithes and offerings. You can tell them to go soul winning. You can tell them to study their Bible. You can tell them to go to the discipleship course. You can tell them all kinds of things. But until a sinner returns to God Almighty and receives the gospel, not as it is the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, until they deal directly with the Almighty, they will never be saved no matter what kind of profession they make or how you clean them up and get them to wear your suit and ascribe to all your doctrinal distinctives of your denomination. Do you hear me today? They've got to deal with God. A sinner has got to get to God to be saved. Not man. And you say, oh, you're splitting hairs. Not at all. Absolutely not at all. As long as the gospel is received as the word of man, it is absolutely powerless. And if you don't think that's right, you go out there and actually try and biblically um, knock on doors and tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come across a man that's honest enough to tell you, yeah, I don't really believe that book. I think men wrote that book. I don't think God wrote that book. And you've got a man who is dead in the water and you can get absolutely nowhere with him until he receives the word as it is in truth, the word of of God. Now you get somebody that looks at that Bible in your hand and you tell them this is the word of God and something goes off inside their heart and they say that's right. And then you start showing them the verses about the gospel, the same verses that you were showing the last man and they turn and repent and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What happened? They received the word not as it is not as the word of man but as it is in truth, the word of God and the power was then there. And the power was present. Now, why do we pray for power? Whenever we talk about going out and um, sharing the gospel, why do we want power? For this reason. Because whenever I say Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, which is a Bible verse, what I need and what I beg God for is that God Almighty will manifest in the hearts of the hearers his power and that he will shake them in their very souls like he shook the Philippian jail and the shackles will come off 
off and the jail doors will be opened and they will know in their hearts that God the Holy Ghost has just spoken to them even though they can't understand it and they're no longer looking at the preacher and they're no longer looking at the tract in their hand as a little pamphlet or a brochure but they're now looking at the word of God and they're looking up to heaven into the eyes of the creator and saying God be merciful unto me a sinner because they know that they're dealing with the almighty God and when that happens the gospel then affects a change in their life and they become a follower of Jesus Christ because they have received the word not as it is the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God so that is the difference between the gospel of deceit and the gospel of truth The gospel that's received as the word of man and the gospel that's received as the word of God. (coughs) Secondly, we have uncleanness. Um, Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Look at 3, 13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So the gospel can come, um, we don't want it to, but it can come in lies, and it can come in lust. That's our second point here. First point was lies. Second point is lust. Not nor of uncleanness. Now, uncleanness is used throughout the Bible as a sensual immorality. A it is a sexual looseness. It doesn't deal with um, like fornication does with the actual act of marriage that is done between people who are not married, which is what fornication is. But uncleanness deals with sensual sexual looseness. It deals um, in its probably in its most raw form. Um, forgive me for even saying it with things like masturbation and stuff like that. Um, Uncleanness deals with a sensual immorality. Now, um, this sensual immorality God hath not called us unto, but unto holiness. And the second way that the gospel can come, that, and that the sensual gospel co- does come in, is in a sexual looseness, in a sensuality, an exchange of sensual gratification for the fruit of the Spirit and proof of salvation. This is an experience-driven faith that is no faith. This faith depends upon the senses to function this faith depends upon the on the senses to be maintained this faith it is not good enough for this kind of faith to have the word of god this kind of faith has to be pumped up with sense driven worship this kind of faith is not based on the word of god but rather on my own personal experiences And this kind of faith has overrun the world. We're going to dig more into this in just a minute. Let's go ahead and go to our third, which is leverage. Now he says, our gospel came not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, which is the third one. Now guile is often paired with deceit in the Bible. Guile is craftiness. We can look at the Bible to define the Bible. I also, I I pulled out all the verses on guile. I've got my concordance unpacked now. And I've also got an old Webster's 18, um, 20 dictionary that I can use and guile is craftiness trickery but you can get that straight out of the Bible anyway um, 2 Corinthians 12 16 this is the only good use of the word guile in the Bible 
2 Corinthians 12, 16. And it says here, but be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Now, the way that Paul is using it here, um, this often will get misapplied. Paul is saying here, he's stating the fact that he would not take a dime from these people, though he was entitled to take money from them for his labors in the gospel. He sidestepped the support that they should have given to gain a better reward, but perhaps, he says, basically in essence, at their expense spiritually. Read the context. He says there, I will very gladly be um, spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? Now, and, and go on, read the whole context, all of chapter 12, and he speaks of... He speaks of how he would not take any money from them. And by the way, at the end of that text in 1221, he deals with the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness in the church again. And he says, when I come, um, he says, unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you and that I shall be well many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Now, this guile that Paul talked about catching the Corinthian church with was the guile of not allowing them to pay him for his services. He would not take a reward lest the... Um, lest from them a physical reward lest his spiritual reward be lessened and it's and it stifled the growth of the church he says it right there he says but i've already got this far i'm not going to change so you guys better figure out how to get this grace of giving and he exhorts them to give to somebody else because he says, I've, I have beguiled you, or I've caught you with guile, he says. I've not allowed you to pay your services rendered. The gospel, the Bible says, they that preach the gospel must live of the gospel. And there's a, pr a principle there that God expects those who are fed to help provide for those that feed. Because... Though man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, the preacher cannot live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God alone either. And he needs some food to eat. And the people that are eating regular food, but are being fed spiritual food, should biblically give to those that are feeding them physical food. So that they can keep on feeding them spiritual food because you can't live on spiritual food alone. And that's a principle in the Bible. Paul would not receive it and instead he labored with his own hands. He wrought with them as we know in the book of Acts making tents and he um, caught them with guile. He says he basically tricked them out of their reward so he could have more reward for himself. Oh my, now that stirred up some. But that's what he said. He said, if you want to get reward, he said, you go get your own reward. Find some people that need some help and give them liberally of what you have. Hallelujah. He says, you get out there and you support the gospel somewhere, but I'm not going to let you give me a dime. And, and there were more reasons to it than just what I said. Um, part of that was that he did not want them to be puffed up and to think that he was beholden to them or that he was obligated to do anything for them. Paul recognized that this carnal church at Corinth, if they gave him anything, would give it with strings attached and he wasn't going to take it. Read your Bible. In other places, he did take gifts, often from poor churches. 
Isn't it interesting that rich people often will put more strings on their money than the poor? In any case, he says, I did not catch you by guile. Now, guile, or he says, I caught you by guile to the Corinthian church. But he says to the Thessalonian church, our gospel came not in guile. Guile is defined as craftiness, as trickery. It is um, usually paired with deceit, um, like in our text that we just looked at. Um, but it's also often paired with hypocrisy or things like that. So this is the use of tricking people into joining your little group or camp. Use of any other means than the preaching of the truth to convince men to be saved is guile. And this will backfire if you are desiring true conversions. Now, if you want to start a cult, um, go ahead. Use deceit, unclean and guile you're on the right track if you want a cult you're going you're going down the track that will lead to a cult now you can go down that road to culthood a long time sometimes before you actually form a cult but just be rest assured you come off on these three things here deceit uncleanness and guile in the gospel and you are giving birth to a cult if it keeps on going without repentance unchecked unchanged unrepented of then in some future generation the very group that was once a bible believing group will be nothing more than a satanic cult because these three things are earthly sensual and devilish we're talking today about this sensual gospel and we're going to look back at uncleanness a little bit more because that ties in to this concept of sensuality in a way that's um, very easy to understand now again we have that picture that i showed you all of a like a gingerbread man shaped body and it says touch on one arm and taste on the head and smell on the other arm and hearing on a foot and sight on a hut on a foot you have these the body has five gates your sense gates your taste your touch your smell your sight and your hearing imagine that the body was a castle for just a moment imagine a great big strong rock castle and imagine all around that castle a bunch of dark enemy soldiers um, dressed in satanic garb and serving beals above the lord of the flies and here he comes to try and make entrance to that castle the walls are too strong god designed mankind in the image of God, he made him in the image of God, a triune being. He made him body, soul, and spirit. As we'll study in another epistle, Paul says, I pray God will sanctify your spirit, soul, and body until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can look it up and get the actual word for word um, yourself because I just kind of gave you the gist of it. I don't remember it verbatim. So here you have the this castle of the body and the devil cannot penetrate your body without going through a gate. He's limited in what he can do. He's limited in how he can affect you. This is why the Bible says flee immorality. Immorality in its grossest sense has to do with touch. At its ultimate fulfillment of sensuality, immorality, and fornication ends in touch. And you don't have a way to just shut off your touch. You touch. If you touch something, you feel it. So God says, flee immorality. You have the ability to shut your eyes, but not your touch. You can't block out your touch. So God says, flee immorality. And the devil will come and try and interact with you through your gates through the gates to your castle, through touch, through taste, through smell, through hearing, and through sight. 
So he comes and he tries to interact with you and he uses deceit. He uses guile and he uses the other thing in our text there, uncleanness to try and interact with you and he'll try to get through your gates. If he can get through the gates of your body, you see, ultimately, even if the devil can hurt your body like he did Job, it doesn't get to your soul. And that's what I mean by this. The devil can't get through to your soul. He cannot interact with your soul. He's not God. He cannot interact with your soul without first getting through the gates of your body. So the devil comes and he begins to work on your eyes, your ears, your hands, your your nose, where your smelling is, your tongue, where your taste is. And he begins to work on these things to try and get you to open a door for him to influence you. That is, this is, by the way, the sensuality of liquor and of alcohol and all these um, religious idiots that run around and I say that with, um, I should say it biblically, religious fools that run around trying to tell people that God doesn't mind if they drink liquor. What you're doing when you drink liquor, God, the devil is using your taste to seduce you and you're using the liquor and as you use it, it drops your defenses, it opens all the other gates Liquor in and of itself, the alcohol in and of itself, is not a sinful substance. It was created by God for use as medicine. But whenever you use it recreationally, you sinfully open all your gates to the devil. By degrees, a little bit here, a little bit there. There is a sea star in the ocean. Sea stars eat oysters, and oysters have strong shells, and they keep them clamped shut. There have been pearl divers who have died because they reached in to grab a pearl out of an oyster on a giant oyster that was maybe a 60, 70, 80-pound oyster, and they've reached in to grab a pearl, and that oyster has shut its shell on their hand. And because it felt that hand in there, it thinks something's trying to eat it. So it clams its shell shut tight. And those people, there have been people die. Because they couldn't get the oyster shell open. But a sea star will will get down on top of an oyster. And it will wrap its legs around that oyster. And grab a hold of that oyster and start pulling apart. And it doesn't pull nearly as hard as maybe a full-grown man, but it can pull for a long time. And it pulls with steady, even force for a long time. And after a long time, a couple hours go by, even the strongest of oysters starts to weaken, and that shell just opens just the tiniest bit, just, just a tiny bit. And then that sea star will take its stomach and turn it wrong side out and shove its stomach through the crack in the oyster shell, through the tiniest crack. And that stomach will then secrete acids and stomach juices that will break down the muscle in the oyster and start to digest the oyster. And the more it digests of the oyster, the looser the oyster gets and the more it opens. And the more easily the sea star can cover its muscles and the sea star eats the oyster out of its shell. And that's what the devil will do to you 
if and you and you and you and you and you and every one of you here if you go and start messing with recreational alcohol it's not a fast death spiritually for a lot of stronger so-called people but it is death nonetheless and it will come now the that's how the devil works through all of our gates he wants to use our touch gate our taste gate our smell gate our sight gate our hearing gate and he wants to get inside the soul the devil's end game is your spirit the devil is on the attack and the devil the bible says when a when a devil is cast out of a man he goeth through dry places seeking rest and finding none he returns to the man that he was in the implication there from the teaching of jesus christ is that somehow the devil can find some kind of rest and recreation inside the dead spirit of a man that's lost in trespasses and sins so the devil's end game is to get inside your spirit now imagine that big castle and inside that castle is a courtyard with barracks and with a stable for the knight's horses and with an armory that's all right there in the in the courtyard of that castle and that would be your soul your mind your will and your emotions on the inside of the body castle that has five gates and inside that castle up against the courtyard maybe on one side of the giant castle walls will be the great keep the great edifice that has a huge door and it has traps on the front and the sides of it to keep people from entering and that's the place where the king is supposed to live. That's your spirit. Now that spirit has had the lights gone out since Adam died. Since Adam sinned and died on the day that he ate of the fruit, that spirit is no longer ruled by the spirit of man that was once alive and created in true righteousness and true holiness. Adam was actually pure and without sin. But when you're born again, God recreates your spirit and puts your spirit in the castle. Until you're born again, your castle's empty. So here's the devil's game. Here's how the sensual gospel works. God works from inside out. John chapter 3 says, Ye must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And thereby he gives you the definition of the water birth of John 3, not of baptism. Baptism is nowhere in that text. Let's just go there real quick. Not only that, but the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, and I think 2, says that Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. It has nothing to do with baptism. Don't let people rest the scriptures. Let the scriptures define themselves. It says here in John 3, 3, Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? There's your context. The mother's womb has been called for centuries the fluid has been called water for centuries and that is the common understanding of what that is even though we know it's amniotic fluid jesus answered verily verily i say unto thee except a man be born of water that's the amniotic fluid which by the way is mostly water if you have to if you actually came down to it it's vastly comprised of water and a few other chemical ingredients and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, which ties in with the water and the mother's womb. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit, uppercase S. That which is born of the uppercase S spirit is lowercase S spirit. In other words, um, proper noun versus common noun. 
The proper noun is a name. The common noun is a descriptive name. So that which is born of the uppercase spirit, the Holy Ghost, is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the spirit. Um, and we could study this whole passage. It would be very useful. Study out John chapter 3. I believe we have already. So what God does is God works inside out. God doesn't want to start with your flesh. God doesn't need to start with your external gates. God starts on the inside. The Bible says that Jesus said, No man can come unto me except God which is the Father draw him. And the Bible says that you're called into salvation. And God will use the gospel to do that. But God begins his work in the heart of man. The Bible says we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Describing the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man who is seeking for the truth of God, but does not have faith in God. He might have faith in grandma. Grandma prayed for him after all. He knows grandma had something real. And grandma talked about Jesus. So he knows Jesus is real because grandma had a relationship with Jesus. And as much as he can, he has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has never been converted because he has never came to a place of actually trusting the word of God. And in fact, the fact that he's trusting the word of grandma may actually, in a way, almost hinder him from getting to Christ because he's trusting grandma instead of Christ. And as long as that happens, his gospel is a gospel of deceit, which is exactly what the devil wants it to be. Now, um, the God then works on the inside to the out. The devil works from the outside to the in. So the devil will give a sensual gospel that works from the outside in. And that's what we're looking at in our text. For our gospel came not unto you, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. So we get to this uncleanness. We just spoke about deceit again. And the uncleanness working through the scent, the smell, the sight, the hearing, the touch, and the taste the this gospel works in through experiences and is a sensual gospel and how does this work the devil comes along and he produces a dynamic and powerful sense-based experience or encounter where your senses are tantalized. Your taste, your touch, your sight, your smell, your, um, your hearing is all affected greatly at this event. And you begin to have a sense of God because you are feeling it with your physical self. But there has not been a conversion on the inside. And so you begin to open up to these teachers who bring you this experience, who have brought you to this encounter. And as you are encountering, as you are led to believe, you are encountering God by these powerful senses and sense effects that are placed upon you. These senses have affected you and you begin to open up your soul to these teachers. And when you open up your soul to these teachers, they begin to give you intellectual reasoning, willpower to overcome, 
and feelings of emotion and they tell you that those things qualify and prove your salvation but deep down in your spirit you are still dead in trespasses and sins this is an experience driven faith and they will often say except ye speak in tongues you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven And they'll tell you things like that because they have an experiential salvation. They have a sensual salvation. It is based on the physical, not on the spiritual. And as Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And these people who are born again of the flesh are still flesh and they're not saved. They have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in a carnal way, but they have never believed in their heart. They have never received the word of God as it is in truth the word of God. They have received it by deceit as it is the word of man and place their trust in the word of man instead of the word of God. And their trust is in their physical senses instead of in the operation of the Holy Ghost bearing witness with my spirit that I am a son of God as God said that he would do. Did you hear what he said? The the spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now many of you say, oh, this can't be true. I, I went to church Sunday and the spirit was there. We even sang, Holy Spirit, you're in this place we sang it 47 times in a row and we swayed back and forth and we shut the lights off and we got tingly goosebumps up and down our backs and up and down our arms and they let the fog roll across and it was so beautiful and my heart just melted inside of me and I felt all these good feelings and ooey gooey and I left there knowing that the spirit of God was in that place listen to me today you had a sensual experience And that sensual experience is earthly and devilish. And you have been sold a bill of goods. In other words, you ain't bought the furniture. You bought the the loan for the furniture. You go to the furniture store and they say, let me sell you furniture. And they don't sell you furniture. They sell you a five-year loan for five times the value of the furniture is what they do. And that's what you bought into. Listen to me today. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Paul the apostle and Silas and the others did not have time in Thessalonica to work up the ooey gooey. The persecutors were on. The contenders were standing against them. There was nothing good feeling about becoming a Christian in Thessalonica. Do you hear me today? They didn't have air conditioning for their churches. They didn't have a bass guitar or a set of drums or anything else to get a good rhythm going and get a moving they didn't have nothing and yes that's a double negative they didn't have anything they had nothing no church house no sound equipment no nothing and i'm not saying having some of that stuff is bad in and of itself but what i am telling you is that if your salvation is based on the sensual and on the experiences and on the goosebumps that run up and down your back you are probably not saved If you are, you have left the faith and you've gone back from the faith and you're now relying on your senses instead of on the witness of His Spirit if you are truly saved and in that condition. Now the Spirit is not something that is easy to discern. In fact, you can't discern it naturally. The Bible says the natural man cannot receive the things of God for they are spiritual. He says that you cannot receive the things of God as a natural man. The Bible says it is quick. 
that the word of God is sharp, it is quick, it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it says this, dividing asunder soul and spirit. Dividing asunder soul and spirit. The word of God is the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world. Remember, the wisdom of this world is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Do you remember that? He says, Not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. It's a hidden wisdom. He says, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. This is not talking about heaven. Has absolutely nothing to do about heaven. Read the context. Look at verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us, and God has not revealed unto us everything about heaven, has he? No, he hasn't. But he has revealed to us the things that I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. The things that come from without and go in are not what God will use to save the soul. It is the work of the Holy Spirit within the man that causes the man then to respond to the word of God. Now, the power of the word of God, the written word of God, is promised by God to endure to all generations. But have you ever noticed that a reprobate can read the word and memorize whole passages and never be changed? Until the Holy Spirit of God does what this passage says and teaches the man in his spirit... Even the written word of God will produce nothing more than a lost religious man. Do you hear me today? There's no magic on the page. Do you hear me today? You can get a King James 1611 Bible fresh off the print in 1611 and you can get that Bible and rub the pages and read the words and it won't save you. You need the Holy Spirit of God to teach you the truth of God's word in your heart. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, but the Holy Spirit of God must do it. So you say, what then? Is there no hope? What can I do? What must I do to be saved? Believe! How do you believe? You accept the light that God gave you. If you desire to be saved, then God gave you light. Otherwise, you would not desire to be saved. Man cannot even desire to be saved. Until God shows him his need and God shows him that there is a salvation. If you have desire in your soul at all to be saved, then God put it there. And you must believe what God has shown you and trust what God has shown you from the word of God and the desire of your word of God and keep on pursuing it. And you can read this book and you might read it for three hours and get absolutely nothing out of it until the Holy Ghost of God starts to speak to your heart through the word. And then all of a sudden it's alive. Am I telling the truth? Have you ever experienced that, any of you? As a Christian, you can read this book for three hours and get absolutely nothing out of it until the Holy Spirit of God starts to speak the word in your heart. And then suddenly it produces something from the inside out, and that is where the power is. The true work of God starts inside and works out. The work of the devil starts outside 
and works in. The sensual gospel starts outside and works in, deals with the senses, excites the senses, gets people to have a hope in their senses. Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, with a capital S. For the Spirit, capital S, searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the lowercase s, Spirit of the world, but the lowercase s, Spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now, the spirit of the world is the spirit, lowercase s, of Antichrist, is driven by demonic, devilish spirits. But the spirit which is of God is the new man that 1 John says is created in true righteousness and true holiness. And that spirit must be present for us to know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. Wait a second, we just read words which man's wisdom teacheth. You can go to a dictionary and read what the word words means and which means and man's means and wisdom means and teacheth means. And you can get a concordance out and look at the Hebrew and the Greek and what it came from and the etymology of the word. And you can do word studies and tense studies on all of these words. But he says, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Unless God does this, this ministry right here that we're doing will be useless. Anyone can listen to this and go away unchanged. We need God the Holy Ghost to teach spiritual truths, or this is of all of naught. Verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Why? Because no man can see the spiritual man. I can't see your spiritual man, whether he be dead or alive. And you can't see my spiritual man, whether he be dead or alive, but you can see the fruit that comes out of the life of that spiritual man. And it says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. It says, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. I hope this was helpful today. We have the sensual gospel that we have studied, lies, lust, and leverage. That guile, the trickery, tricking people into joining your little group, tricking people into joining your church. You don't really say exactly what you believe. You'll say it however you need to say it for them to agree with you. You don't say anything of substance. You just kind of go along with everybody and anything so that you can get more nickels and noses. It's another part of the deceitful gospel, which is the gospel in word only and not in power. But that gospel of guile will get people into your church no matter what you got to say, and it's going to backfire on you someday, sir. You're going to have a house full of false converts. If you want to start a cult, you are on the track that will get you there. But the gospel of God that Jesus died for us, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day, must be given without lies, without lust, and without leverage, but rather it must come in the power of Almighty God, and we cannot produce that in and of ourselves. Only God can produce that, and that is why Jesus said, Get this, without me ye can do nothing. Now, some of you may have listened to this thinking, I've gone off the deep end, and you think that your little sinner's prayer and that your little thing of one, two, three, repeat after me, Jesus died for us, was buried and rose again, is all that it takes to save people. And you quote your favorite um, little verse about it, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And there's truth. That verse is truth, but you have misapplied it. 
you have misapplied it today. And I hope that you can see this um, through what we've taught today, that you are taking a deceitful gospel to people because the words of the gospel do not have power to save people unless Jesus Christ himself illuminates those words to those people. They must see Christ. They must get to Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Some of you may be sitting here today saying, well, am I really saved then because I heard the words of the gospel and I believed the words of the gospel? Did I really believe God? Listen, I'm not here to try and cause you to doubt. But causing you to doubt your salvation would not be nearly as much of a sin as causing you to hope in a false salvation. That would be a far greater sin to commit. And that's being committed all over our land. Listen to me. Whenever you go to God and you read the Word of God and you seek God and you have God Almighty speaking spiritual truth to your heart from the Word of God that lines up with the Word of God and is not in contradiction to the Word of God, it won't matter what I say. I won't be able to scare you out of your salvation. Do you hear me today? And that's where you got to get. That's where you need to get. You need to get to where you're walking so close with God that people can't scare you out of it. People can't make you doubt your way out of it. Where your faith is resting on the word of God and you know that you know that you know. Not because some guy in a suit told you you were saved at an altar at some camp meeting. And you got baptized in front of 600 people or whatever. You need to know that you know that you know because God, the Holy Ghost, has taught you from His own Word what be the spiritual truths of salvation through the Word of God and has witnessed to your spirit that you are a child of God. And when you know that, you will have power in your life and you will not have fear. The Lord hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of soundness of mind. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would use this for your glory. And, Lord, that you would balance it. Lord, anything that I've said that's out of order, or if I shifted, Lord, to one side or another, off of the narrow path and the old path of your truth, then I pray that you'd reprove it, Father. Reprove me for it. Show me where I'm wrong, Father. And, Lord, anyone that's listening to this, if they hear something that I said that was wrong, Lord, I pray that you would correct me in their heart with Scripture. Lord, that you would not allow anything here to be used by the devil to give people either false assurance or false, um, uh, false lack of assurance. But, Lord God, that each of us would go to God until we get the full assurance of the gospel through the power of God and not just through the word of man. We love you today in Jesus' name. Amen.